Welcome to The Occasion. I'm your host, Jennifer Perrine, and this is Episode 4. The Occasion is a themed poetry show featuring interviews with poets who offer a selection of their greatest hits, read poems written specifically for the occasion of the show, and recommend some of their favorite poems by other authors. So, a little of something old, something new, something borrowed, and something true. Before we get started, I want to thank everyone in our community who's been pulling together, creating new programming, and keeping KBU not just on the air, but also fresh and relevant. The station's closed right now, which means we're all recording from home, and it means we've also had to cancel our usual spring membership drive. If you're in a position to give, we hope you'll donate online at kboo.fm to keep this volunteer-powered, listener-supported community resource alive and well. During the interview, there are a couple of references to it being Mother's Day weekend. And so if you're listening to this and thinking, have I really lost all track of time? No, you haven't. We just recorded this a couple of weeks ago and are airing it now on Memorial Day. Because of that, when Tracy mentions an upcoming reading with Ellen Bass, actually that event already took place. And you can find more information about it and links to other readings in that series at hivepoetry.org slash E-V-E-N-T-Z-Z or at Hive Poetry on Facebook. And now on to the show. It's May 2020, and the theme for this month is Mother. Our guest tonight is Tracy Brimhall. Tracy is the author of four collections of poetry, Come the Slumberless to the Land of Nod, and Sodaji, both from Copper Canyon Press, Our Lady of the Ruins from W.W. Norton, and Rookery from Southern Illinois University Press. Her poems have appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, Slate, The Believer, The New Republic, Orion, and Best American Poetry. She's received a National Endowment for the Arts Literature Fellowship and is currently Director of Creative Writing at Kansas State University. Welcome to the show, Tracy. Thanks, Jen. So this month's theme is Mother, and I'm hoping you can start us off with a poem or two of yours that, so that we can hear how that theme has shown up in your poetry. Sure. I was thinking that maybe I would read two, one about my mother and one about my son, especially as we're coming up on Mother's Day. We're coming up on the anniversary of my mother's death. Um, my mom died several months after my son was born on the weekend of, of Mother's Day. So the first one is about, you know, the grief of mothers and carrying around the missing of mothers, which is one of the things my new book is about. So this one is called Mystery Play. Rather than the miracles, one act of all the failures, Samson's pillow talk, Cain sacrificing a still life of pomegranates, Sarah offering Hagar as a gift to her husband, Hagar unable to refuse. I left the religion that kept the sin and its images, keep catching snakes and feeding them apples on stage. After intermission, God's more recent debacles, tsunamis, polar bears, the nurse who said my mother could go home, the doctor who misread her chart, a dream in which my mother pins herself to the mattress with hypodermic needles in her wrists, painless, forsaken, overprepared for namelessness. Her suffering transformed no one, least of all herself. On a scale of one to ten, the pain dissolves like a Eucharist. God always meant to watch his son die. Sweet Jesus, love child of history and deserts, Mother Christ and her dead-end ascendants, nursing that hope of heaven on her dead breast. On a scale of bearable to feral, I am raised by wolves and showing. When God's courage failed, Mary watched. Centurions with nail guns, monotone heartline, homely spirit slipping out whole as an egg, God's right hand bleeding like a lamb. And so, of course, because that's about, you know, my mother dying, it's the sad one. Um, and then hopefully the poem about my son is a little bit more cheerful. And so this is Arctic Lullaby, and it's about being pregnant with my son while I was sailing the Arctic. Arctic Lullaby. Here in the not night, there is danger in the zodiac, a stowaway on the ship, invisible mortal asleep below deck. Little ghostling in your red box, refusing exit. 
Body all cell and ossifying bone, long, beautiful it. Fear that, darling, this. Summer plus evening giants means when you're born, you must wander the below. The polar bear remembers what the snow forgets, but the turns are easy to please. Nestling, uncurl. Fingerling, awake. Only snow bunting sing in the everyday where light crusades from cliff to glacier and back. Here in the gray midnight, you swell into being. Here of the bright lullabies and curtainless portholes, the narwhals migrating in old blubber ovens growing the greenest moss in the archipelago. Little awe, lengthen. My petite seedling, nest of cells, a bed in sweet and sorrow, building cardiac, nervous, respiratory. I, the holding and the holding back. You, my soul doubling, the best terror I have known. So you mentioned in the, in the segue between those two poems that what, one is because it's a, about, about your mother's death that it's this poem that, that feels sad or, or carries grief with it and this other poem hopefully would be happier. And I know that this, the book kind of arrived at this confluence of or came out of a confluence of events that that included, you know, your pregnancy, the birth of your son, your mother's death. And I think of the, the line that ended the Arctic lullaby, the best terror I've known, where there's, there's even this terror in this moment of wonder and beauty. And I, I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about how those different things are overlapping in these poems and in this book. Sure. Yeah. I mean, gosh, like all things, I don't know that I would have written these poems if all of this stuff hadn't just ended up colliding all over each other. But it is true that something happens hormonally almost when <laughs> pregnant where the world feels so deeply personal. The way I would read news stories felt, the world felt closer to me than it had ever felt before. Um, and I'd seen somebody talk about it as a superpowered empathy of just you are way more porous between yourself and the world. And so when my mom died a few months after my son was born, I might have felt that, I mean, I'm sure surely I would have felt that strongly anyway, but it brought up a whole host of emotions that I'd never even felt about my mother before too. So there was just this deep exchange with the world and with, you know, my connection to my son and mother at the same time. But I, I think, of course, like, something beautiful, right? Like even Rilke said, every angel is terrifying. Mm -hmm. I think the things that are beautiful also are quite scary. And that certainly felt true in the Arctic, that the beauty was also terrifying. But then there's also, I've been reading, like many people, some Ivan Boland poems because of her passing, just revisiting her work. And the line that's just gotten me today is, if I defer my grief, I, I give up its gift. Or I'm, I'm not quoting it right, but the about the gift of that grief, which is another one of those odd pairings, like beauty and terror, but like the gift and the grief of it that that feels like maybe those things are at odds, but at the same time, like taking in those very strange mixed bag of emotions and really learning from it. Because the other thing that happened at the same time was my friend's murder trial. So there was all of this, how do I, you know, reconcile the the loss and the new life, the goodness and, you know, pureness of something newly made, as well as, you know, what felt like you know, something evil to me, right? Well, how the mm -hmm. murder of my friend. But trying to like reconcile those, some of the greatest tensions of my life and in the span of just actual months of, you know, carrying my son, of giving birth, of losing my mother, all those things. It seems like one of the ways that I guess you, you attempt to reconcile those things in the book is through uh, maybe the pairing of these Dear Thanatos poems and the Dear Eros poems. And I don't know if, if that's how you think about it, but it was a kind of gesture that I read in the book. And I'm just curious about how those those epistolary poems came about, if they started with, with one and a series emerged, or if you knew that they would always be built in tandem with each other. Oh, yeah. So I, I've always had one-night stands with Thanatos. So this is my fourth book, and I've been working on, you know, these one-night stands for um, – probably since after my first book, right, when I wasn't in love with an idea that I was chasing around in a book or working on, you know, something else, I would just write these, and, but I wanted to write, I would just have a one-night stand with Thanatos and wrote Dear Thanatos poems off and on for years. 
also what was really strange about it, I loved that whenever I said Dear Santa Toast, I, something always answered, right? Whenever mm-hmm. I sat down to write and used that epistolary form to Thanatos, this idea of death and the death drive in a person, and address basically my own darkest impulses, that I got something really lyric and strange. And I'd always I'd struggled a bit with, the, with writing lyrics, right? something unattached to narrative when I first started writing poems. But somehow when I talked to what was darkest in me, I got those lyric, strange, fragmenty things came out really easily. And the Dear Eros poems were some of the last things I wrote for the book. I'd never really thought about doing the pairing, but I was, you know, towards the end of this book, and I thought about, well, what, and I'm really struggling to write at that time and wondered, well, what if I wrote to love instead? What if what I courted was the love impulse in me, was the will to be alive impulse in me rather than the will to die? And What's so interesting to me, too, is that love is chatty. Um, whenever I write to Eros, it was very conversational and very long. And that just even the tone, the images, it's much, there's a lot more narrative impulse in those. The diction's, you know, much more colloquial and conversational. And it just was a very different kind of poem. And so it could be that I just wrote them at different times that they just ended up being so different. But I thought it was fascinating, too, when I started to write to this opposite impulse in me or a different abstraction even that I just got a wholly different kind of poem out of myself. So I, I kind of found that interesting too. And th- those were some of the last ones that I did for the book. And I don't know that I, the book would have felt as finished if books ever do feel finished or ready to let go. But yeah, it started with one night stands and ended in love. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I like that narrative. <laughs> So in addition to those series in the book, the Arctic Lullabies, maybe you could also consider that one of a, a series of poems in the book. You've got this sequence of different lullaby poems. Can you talk a little bit how those came to be? Yeah, so much of it was just being a new mom and having only enough to get through a day most of the time. My son was a terrible sleeper. It took until he's six now and just started sleeping through the night. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> But that first year, I mean, that first year or two was just especially bad. I, I slept on the floor of his um, nursery for so long until eventually I just drug a mattress in there and would pass out there after getting him to sleep. And sometimes I felt like I had enough energy to try and read something, you know, drag a book next to his nightlight and lay curled up there before I'd sleep again. But just still wanting so bad to think again, to have an internal life again. And so, so many of those poems, I mean, Arctic Lullaby was crafted while he was pregnant and so still slept, still felt like, you know, more of myself, even though I had another body growing inside me. But a lot of the lullabies were just fighting for a line and fighting for that part of myself, even though they're about him, it is about fighting for still having imagination and energy for my own self, not just for, because he got so much of the rest of the energy I just wanted <laughs> to still be a writer, right? I didn't have to write as much as I used to or in the ways that I used to. But lullabies are, according to Lorca, who wrote a lot about the Spanish lullaby in particular, that the melodies just need to be soothing and the lyrics could be whatever the mother needed to say, right? So if the mom, he talks about this one Spanish lullaby in which the mom is like, baby, go to sleep. i got to invite the neighbor over so we can get our freak on. And, you know, like it could be that just has to be a soothing tone and then you can confess whatever you need to inside of it. And I loved that idea of like it just needs to sound pleasant and I can hide whatever I need to say inside that. But that the lullaby is half for the child and half for the mother. And I loved that, that the mother was not getting just the child's sleep out of the way, but also you could say whatever you needed to say in it of just like, mommy's so exhausted. Mommy's eyeballs are so dry, you know, <laughs> say whatever you needed to. But yeah, so many of those were just forged out of sheer desperation to still hold on to that claim about myself as a writer, that sense of selfhood that has thoughts. <laughs> and I just, I remember just the, the lack of energy or focus I had to in that first year and how difficult it was to make. But as always in the hardest points of my life, I'm so glad that I did make the time and did make the effort even when it felt beyond my ability to think or make that I still put some things down 
and tried to do something with, with what energy I did have because now they are those memories. I can remember the nights. I can remember where I might have been sitting when I scratched out some lines. And it's really important to me that even if they aren't the best poems perhaps in the book, that they're ones that were hard won and mean a lot to me for that reason. So it seems really clear to me that early motherhood changed your writing in pretty significant ways. Would you say um, now that, how old is your son now, seven? He's six and a half. Six He's and just half. asking for a half birthday present right now. All. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now that you're uh, maybe a, a more experienced mother, a little further along, hopefully not dealing with those same sleep issues anymore, um, do you feel like motherhood is still is still affecting how you are as a writer or the, the kinds of things that you want out of writing in the same ways that, or maybe in a, a different kind of way than what those lullabies were helping you to do? Yeah, because in a lullaby, I could say anything. I could be like, child, you're the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but, but now, too, uh, you know, I have to, I'm starting to, he's got more of a personhood. I mean, before he was a loaf of bread with a nervous system. Um, <laughs> But now when I take the things he says and put them in a poem, maybe that's the poem I need to write for the moment, but I I have to consider the ethics of of it so much more now of will he feel, will this be a good record of a moment of his childhood or will this be something he will look back on later and be like, mom, how could you tell strangers that? And how when kids are super little, their problems are fairly universal, but as they grow and become more of who they are, like having to honor the privacies that they might want a little bit more. Because even with friends, when I put friends in a poem, I try and do a good job of checking with them and sending them a copy and be like, you know, how does this make you feel? Are you comfortable with this? Um, is this okay? And just making sure, you know, that other everybody in a poem gets consent about being there. Except the dead, right? You can't really get their permission. So just trying to think about, yeah, the ethics of including him, though he's such a part of my days and the things he says are so poetic sometimes that I want to, you know, still be including him and often do, but just have to be really thoughtful about what parts of him in his life and his learning to be a self that I share and what parts are for me to remember in my own way or maybe share again with him later in a different context, um, but that don't get to be shared with strangers because because even as a little person, you still get some privacy. Mm-hmm. Are there ways that you've developed to to help you think through that? I don't know if he's at a point where checking in with him works or if there are other things that help you kind of process the ethics of using a particular experience or maybe something he said now that he is a little bit older. I I don't check in. He has heard some things. I'll be like, I'll show him that he's in a poem or he's heard me read, like the Arctic Lullaby poem I've read to him when he was at a reading. Mm. And I'm not sure he totally understands. And right now just, you know, like my mom wrote a poem about me. So I don't think I can get meaningful consent. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it all, also and always will depend on context. Like this is a, sort of an aside, but I think, you know, pr- shows something. I was talking with a friend today, and we were sort of talking about empathy and other people's pain, and she said, well, when somebody tells you this, how do you feel? And I said, well, I don't feel anything. Those are their feelings. And mm-hmm. her perception that my what I feel is respecting someone else's feelings for her comes off as uncaring because I don't think I get to say oh I feel that too or I you know I'm there with you I think somebody else's pain is their pain it's not mine Um, but other people might see what I see as a sign of respecting their feelings as not caring a lot so I do the thing for my son of like well how would I feel if my mother wrote this but I had a very different mother, and he will also have a very different view of what I'm doing. So like with so many things in ethics, you might have a different view on it, and I might have to apologize for some things later. But I think I think it, most love is just a career in forgiveness, and so I'll probably have some things to apologize for later on regardless. And just the thing about parenting, too, where there are things that you were, like, vigilant about and you are not going to screw up in that way. You're going to get that right. <laughs> and maybe you do, but the kid ends up presenting you for something totally you didn't know you were doing. Right. <laughs> so I think it'll be one of those things, right, where I think it's important that I'm trying, you know. Mm-hmm. And then if he feels like he wishes I would have drawn the line differently later, then we'll definitely have to have that conversation. And I'll just consider trying and just keep trying and being thoughtful. And I'll screw up, for sure. Um, (laughs) But I will do my best to be a good mom and be an ethical poet and all of those things. 
but being a human being, mistakes are bound to happen. Yeah. I think I love what you just said that most love is a career in forgiveness, I think. 100% true and necessary because of all of those mistakes that we're inevitably going to make. (laughs) For those just joining us, you're listening to The Occasion on KBOO Portland. I'm Jennifer Perrine, and we're talking with Tracy Brimhall. I asked Tracy to write a poem specifically for the occasion of the show, so y'all are about to hear a brand new poem. All right, so I did want to share another parenting poem, and this one comes out of my son and I watching a lot of Lego Masters during nice. uh, <laughs> during this pandemic time, and in a small Facebook group, we have been trying to build alongside the Lego prompts of the show. Mm. So. I don't think I named Lego in the poem because just like song lyrics are trademarked, I really didn't know. But the plastic bricks are, in fact, Legos. <laughs> and uh, in one of, I forgot what the Lego building prompt was, um, but we ended up building a museum of fire. So this is museum of fire. The yard spangled with a benign pandemic of dandelions soft gold waiting to mature into wishes, and we are waiting for the fevers to pass. We stay indoors, build robots out of recycling and domino labyrinths, snap plastic bricks into towers and cars. My son wants to make a skyscraper that is also a museum of fire, floors rising with the heat, so we open bins of bricks. A thousand miles away, my brother wears his fatigues and gloves, holds swabs in drive-through testing sites. Four and a half miles away, my love is told that I am non-essential travel. On the first story, my son and I make the history of fire. On the second, he wants to make where we are, the slow smolder of Kansas and its controlled burns, transparent orange flames tucked into tall grasses. My friend who holds the hands of the dying is homesick. My father teaches my niece how to catch frogs in the benthic murk of the pond. In my house, we learn history on toys and place on the third story the O'Leary cow kicking the lantern towards Chicago. This is what I want my son to know, the almost silly origin, not the hundreds dead, not thousands left homeless, not the way a burning can leap rivers. Two tulips compete with the red bud to be pinkest. Spring wants to be a calendar of bee seductions. On the fourth story, the Library of Alexandria. My son doesn't ask what scrolls turned to smoke, so I don't have to say no one knows. Fragments survive ruin. Dust. Stories. Instead, he asks if the phoenix on the roof with its ersatz blaze is real. And because I want him to be brave, I say, maybe it was once. Maybe this is an ash year. We must be patient and let it all happen to us. The consuming, the unfeathering, the body learning the pain of suffering and the pain of healing are different. At the window, he sees it and calls for my camera to capture it. There in the sky, a myth made cirrostratus and stretched, but yes, there. And it opens, it grows, it rises. I love this this image of the Museum of Fire and constructing this together. Just that particular image, where did that, was that, uh, was that something that you actually chose to build together? Is that where that came from? Yeah, so that is just actually is the, the now I'm thinking that maybe it was like the, the city prompt, build a city block, and we were like, well, we can't mm-hmm. build a city block, we've got to pick a building. <laughs> and I think when he said Museum of Fire, he meant like, a firefighting museum or he meant mm. I just love that what he said was the museum of fire and you know I came up with some ideas like the library of Alexandria which of course a child wouldn't come up with and you know I know we were missing a, a floor and I was like what should we do and he's like we should do the Kansas fires and I was like oh, yeah every year the prairie around us is um, does a controlled burn and we can watch the hills burn and then they're black for a week and start turning bright green and just mm. he would like the best things also, like collaboration came up with the best ideas. And so it was fun to like be doing this stuff together and also really cool to be creative with my child and realize too that, that you know, we are like building something together. And so it was really, so I also got to teach him about the great Chicago fire and the O'Leary cow. Mm-hmm. He's like, What's, why is there a cow? 
so like giving him these little history lessons and creative problem solving. And we really did find an image in the sky where she's like, it looks like the Titanic. <laughs> and oh. Like, <laughs> but I love that it really does in the photo that I did take of this, this cloud in the sky. It looks to me like a, you know, a bird with their wings outstretched. Um, and I've been a person who hates the Phoenix, but I really liked his interest in it. And he really saw the hope in that sort of story, that myth of that bird. Um, and I've always hated, well, not always hated, but in my current life, I hate the Phoenix and the constant starting over um, mm. that life requires and feel exhausted by it. Because I also think about no one, when we think about the Phoenix, we think about it solely as hopeful, but also thinking about like a butterfly when the butterfly, when the caterpillar turns entirely to goo and rebuilds itself into a butterfly, it retains its nervous system. So that means it has retained all of its memories of its transformation. And what a painful transformation to be reduced in goo. But I mean, think about the poor phoenix. I mean, how, like, I think eternity sounds exhausting anyway, but like to to go through that whole process to be destroyed by fire. And then if you retained the memory of all of that all over again, Mm. is it, is is it more of a trap than a rebirth? But that's too depressing and (laughs) hard enough as it is. And people need their hope. So that's okay. But, uh, but it was also interesting, you know, like thinking about this, this bird that I hate, um, this myth that I hate and my son really liking it and wanting to know more about this myth and this legend and this bird that burns itself and like wanting to give him the good version of it and the hopeful version of it rather than be like, mommy hates this. <laughs> <Mommy's tired."> <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the, the museum of fire like came from like this, again, a thing that he said that I was like, yes, let's do that. Let's build that thing because it was just a cooler idea than I would have had on my own. Um, yeah. And so that was, yeah. And again, it's one of those things I'm like, I'm really glad that, and this has been my number one recommendation for anybody who's a writer at this time. Even if the landscape, as your, your emotional landscape keeps changing rapidly or you feel exhausted, of fighting for those lines, just lines. They don't have to be whole poems, just moments, journaling to remember some of these times that otherwise they're going to start, the days start, have already started to blend together for so many of us. What month is it? But just trying to get something down to go back to those concrete things that you can say yes I remember that I remember that time I remember that place I remember building that museum of fire I just think it's really important as you were talking about that that experience of of wrestling with uh, the, the phoenix and how you wanted to represent it or how you wanted your son to see it it reminded me of I think it's in your poem sleep regression lullaby where there's a, a couple of lines with something like uh, when when you were born, my sister said, maybe now you'll write some happy poems. Uh, <laughs> yes. And then the, I think it, uh, it's uh, something like, but she's a mother, she should know better. And, yeah. and I think about like this this collaborative moment that you're having with your son, in both in the way that you're talking about it and in the poem itself. And just wondering to what extent, I don't know, that you still, maybe in the process of trying to have these collaborative moments or trying to write about this experience of yet another really difficult point in in our lives? Like, is this a moment where you are attempting to write happy poems on his behalf or to find moments of happiness for him? Or are you approaching it in some other way? How are you thinking about all of that? I love that question. The, the book also does have this poem called Oh Wonder, where mm-hmm. the deal I made with my future son, who's going to have the conversation about why did you put this in a poem, <laughs> was that I decided this would be the last transgression or the, the thing that felt like maybe it was too much, but I was going to let this one go and then be more protective of him in the future. And in that poem, he a real thing where he was like crying and I was trying to help. And he said, he was pulling on his pajama collar, like, almost like he was trying to get it off or get out. And he said, Mom, the sad is so big, I can't get it all out. Like he couldn't get all of his feelings out of his little body. Mm. And that felt like maybe too much to share that this child with this, these big feelings and what it was like to, to watch him learning how to process his feelings and recognize that I couldn't fix it or help it and that I just had to be with him while he got through it. 
And I think the things that I have written about him since and during this time have all been pretty positive. But I also think he and I have largely had a really good time together. It's still Mm -hmm. difficult. We still have struggles. Um, There are things that are impossible. But we've also, you know, built these Lego things. We've built fairy houses. We are um, have a butterfly kit and are watching, you know, caterpillars turn into butterflies right now. <laughs> and we're going on walks and we're we're spending more time together, of course, than we ever have before since he was a newborn. And so it is like reconnecting maybe with some of those old things. But it's also, I think I have been feeling pretty good during a lot of this. I've loved being with my child more. I've also loved being home more. And it's actually kind of really centered me. And I know everybody processes it differently, but I'm definitely a person that seems to do really well in crisis, which is probably all those coping mechanisms and I'm flooded with cortisol and adrenaline. But (laughs) that, you know, my days are planned. We have adventures. We, you know, we're having a really good time with just each other as playmates. And that's been going and a foster dog. Um, but that's, oh. been, that's been going okay for us. And in fact, it's like given me a lot of joy. Oh, and now here comes his little voice. It seemed like very appropriate timing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think because of a lot of, a lot of memories are joyful that I'll write joyfully about them. I guess maybe one thing I'm curious about in this time where, where you are finding these different ways to make joy or create joy in a space where it could be really challenging or really painful. I'm thinking about another line from one of your poems where you write, motherhood is pain plus joy. Mm. Um, and and wondering in what ways that feels true right now or, or not true, or also maybe kind of what, what you were thinking about as you wrote that line. Hmm. I remember taking notes on a presentation on comics that said something about uh, how lots of emotions are a combination, like disgust. I forgot, I've even forgotten Mm. what the origin ones were, but the idea of having to combine different facial expressions to communicate like a more complex emotion rather than happy, sad kind of thing. So if you're shooting for a more complex emotion, you have to figure out what the combination emotions are that belong to that facial expression. Hmm. And so I was thinking about you know, what two emotions do you combine to to communicate? So it was like a journaling thing I did once of like this plus this equals this, right? Like trying to come Mm. up with this math equation of emotion. And so I know that that's part of how that line got written was just, you know, meditating on that comics presentation I'd seen on how to communicate emotion and then applying that sort of, you know, simple addition to something else. But I think it's fraught with all sorts of pains, right? So I think... There was that, I experienced, I know mothers actually do experience loving their children in very different ways and also a different timeline. So I know, you know, I've had friends who didn't love their children right as they were born um, and also how alienating that was for them to not experience what they thought they were supposed to. Um, And I did, I was lucky enough that when my child, you know, was born and like laid on my chest that like there was this huge flood of emotion and felt way different than any way I'd ever experienced loved before, you know, all of the cliches proved true. But then, you know, that horror of, you know, now my heart is outside of my body and wandering around and things will happen to him and I won't get any control over it and I won't be able to protect him. And and now, you know, as he's developing as a little person, I think some of the pain comes from not understanding him. Um, this person I've, know better than anyone else on this planet that was a part of my body that I fed from my body that I you know half of my genetic material and yet to feel like strangers to one another sometimes to misunderstand one another to hurt one another those things are really I think it's a different kind of pain too I remember writing a line also about the surgeon who cut him out cut his foot when she pulled him out um, in the Mm -hmm. c-section and I remember writing about it as such a huge relief that I wasn't the first one to hurt him. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that, you know, like his first wounding came from somebody else. And now, too, we're to the point where, like, buddy, come on. How many times do I have to ask you to put on your shoes? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> from that first, like, oh, my heart has never been so full to, like, how long does it take? Talk to <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, so um, I think that the pains also change over time. And I'm sure that will continue to be true, that each stage of parenting comes with its great joys and memories and museums of fire, right? And then also its great struggles and the ways ways in which he feels like a stranger to me and then also the ways where he's so much like me and holds up that mirror to who I am. And I'm like, oh, no, that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> and he does this great thing where um, he, the way his dad and I will talk to him about what he has to work on is, you know, like, well, you know, this is something we're going to have to work on, right, about, like, his behavior or these things. Mm. So he feels perfectly free to offer this back. So the one I got oh. the other day was, Mommy, one of the things you really need to work on is not being in a hurry when there's no reason to hurry. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> this is accurate, but why are we talking about it? <laughs> so it's not even like we were, you know, in a hurry at that moment. He's like, you know one thing you do? And I'm like, Okay. <laughs> Not fun, but all right. <laughs> like, um, like but having a have small these... therapist with you at all times. Yeah. <laughs> just, like knows all of your weaknesses and knows the buttons to push. and Or also sometimes how his behaviors are a reflection of me and things I do. I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't like that. I'm not good. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it just, yeah, lots of, uh, gosh, what was, there's some book that was titled Parenting is like All Joy and No Fun or something like that. <laughs> you know, always in the long game of trying to help this person become the best version of themselves and survive the process, which does have so many joys and cool memories and also so much difficulty and wounds you in very different ways, I think, and, or you figure out in different ways, different kinds of hurts that you're learning by having a kid. But I'm going to say, at least right now, today, feeling more that joy than the pain part, but the pain <laughs> stuff is definitely there. Hopefully both are maybe always there and they yeah. just tip onto different sides of the equation occasionally. For those of you just joining us, you're listening to The Occasion on KBOO Portland. I'm Jennifer Perrine and we're talking with Tracy Brimhall. Tracy, did you bring some poems by some other poets? Yes. The first poem I was going to share was Ellen Bass's I Could Touch It. And I also just want to recommend, um, it's a longer poem, so I'm not going to read it, but this, her poem Indigo from her, uh, which is the title poem of her new collection, it's really beautiful and amazing. So get the new collection, and I really recommend Indigo. But the poem I'm going to read today is I Could Touch It by Ellen Bass. When my wife was breaking apart, my son was falling in love. She lay on the couch with a heated sack of rice on her belly, sometimes dozing, sometimes staring out the window at the olive tree as it broke into tiny white blossoms, as it swelled into bitter black fruit. At first, I wanted to spare him. I wished he was still farming up north, tucking bulbs of green onions into their beds and watering the lettuce, his hands gritty, his head haloed in a straw hat. But as the months deepened, I grew selfish. I wanted him here with his new love, when I passed the open bathroom door, I wanted to see them brushing their teeth, one perched on the toilet lid, one on the side of the tub, laughing and talking through their foamy mouths, toothbrushes rattling against their teeth. Like sage gives it scent when you crush it, like stone is hard. They were happy, and I could touch it. And the next poem I want to read um, is by Julia Dasbach from her book, The Many Names for Mother. So obviously another great collection thinking about Mother's Day um, and poems about mothers and motherhood. Um, another thing I really like about her work is she does have this long sequence called Other Women Don't Tell You. So thinking too about, you know, like I mentioned, a friend told me that she didn't feel love for her daughter right away. It took about three months. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes that there are all these sorts of things that once I was pregnant, a lot of friends were like, oh, you know, it's really normal if this, or like, if you find yourself trying to sell your baby on the internet, it's completely normal. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, you'll see, you'll see. And I'm like, oh my God. But that, you know, people just, not before I was pregnant, but after, um, were willing to admit, you know, these certain things once I was going to be on the other side of that club. And that, you know, sometimes people then decided to share with me 
but um, so I want to again pick another one of the shorter ones in this in this book. But I was sharing a poem by Julia uh, with my son, and he said, you know, he's, he's figuring out what poetry is and coming to poetry readings, and he said, so the things in a poem don't have to be real, but they have to be true. Mm. And I was like, yeah, this was my favorite <laughs> definition it. of a poem ever, and like a kid figured it out. I was like, yeah, <laughs> okay. So this one by Julia is called. My mother as a failed sonnet, or maybe just a forest. I've written you as rivers, as frost, as everything hidden underneath it, as a children's picture book in a foreign language, as language, that one and all others, as your hands and those of your mother and hers, most often hers, as what she holds in them, as the empty tea kettle, as everything she'd lost, the dead and their sea, and its unsinking as salt, as what abandon must mean and what it must taste like, war and famine, immigration and tea, Ceylon, Lady Grey, Darjeeling, as the fortune it leaves at the bottom of spent cups, and as those cups carried across ocean and name, as water, generations and generations of it, mother's open hands, as bare Russian birch branches grasping for clouds, as what a child sees looking up in a forest. I'm still thinking about what you were talk- what you were sharing about that, Julia's poem, or is it a poem or a sequence of poems, The Other Women Don't Tell You? It's a whole sequence. Yeah, she's lost of poems called uh, Other Women Don't Tell You. Is it What Other Women Don't Tell You? Let me, let me reference it to make sure I'm saying the right thing. Oh, yeah, okay. Other Women Don't Tell You. Yeah, I was just thinking about what you were sharing there about these admissions that are made on one side of motherhood but not on the other, and and why why women don't don't tell other women uh, certain things. I'm curious if if you think that's about judgment or fear of judgment or why don't those things get shared? Hmm. I I think it. It is about belonging, and often we do want to be around people who think like us or who are like us, Um, and it can be fairly alienating to be somebody who is different in a group for whatever reason, Mm -hmm. and so to know that I might soon be experiencing something. But, I mean, also I think often it wasn't even just, oh, now you're going to come to this side, so let me confess something. It was also about making sure I was going to be okay. So when I would mm-hmm. get those confessions, I saw them as these great acts of care. Of They were trying to make sure that I wouldn't feel as scared and alone as they felt at that time because nobody had told them that it was okay or it was, you know, a version of normal, right? There's lots of different normals postpartum, and no one had given them that comfort or that sense of their own normalcy because, you know, we live these – I think it's just always true, but definitely with social media and like the images or the most fa- you know famous current example is, are all the parents who have these color-coded schedules for their children in like quarantine homeschooling stuff mm. and then people posting like what actually it looks like, um, what actually the schedule of the day ends up being of just this idea of like, I'm not measuring up, I'm not enough. I think I think a lot of people carry around that feeling that they're not doing it right, that there must be some sort of right. And I think parenting, there's certain wrong things to do, I would say, but um, <laughs> for the most part, it is just all you got to do your best. And it's still mostly okay if you just do your best. But I think, especially with like lots of cultural models of color-coded Excel charts for schedules, <laughs> it can feel like you're not doing enough or not doing it right. And so with those confessions, I did feel like a sense of somebody taking care of me. Though had I heard some of those things before getting pregnant, I might have changed my mind. <laughs> but that's okay. Here on the other side of it, I definitely wouldn't give it back. But, uh, yeah, it's been, um, it's been hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is why you need those acts of care. <laughs> yes. And, and thinking about those those kinds of acts of care. So some of that can come from people directly, from friends, it maybe comes through poems like Julia's. Are there other sources, whether it's through poetry or through something else that you find or that you would recommend for uh, mothers or parents who who need that act of care maybe, maybe more keenly right now than during other times? 
Yeah, I, I wish there was, and maybe there is, like a post secret for mothers <laughs> to mm. <laughs> admit some of those things. But I, I think that's also what I do. I think that's part of what I love about poems, too, is you can often get these admissions of the ways people live or experience the world. So with that Ellen Bath poem, I could touch it. One of the things I love talking to students about, it's so far away from, like, what they've experienced yet, but the idea of a mother being selfish alone is such an admission for that poem. And then also that her idea of selfishness is to want her son near, to watch somebody be in love, because that would make watching her wife die easier to bear. And so, like, I just, I love that that's not an idea that most of them have even considered yet. But, like, yeah, the idea of a mom being selfish is like, yes, want that, get it. <laughs> uh, or, uh, you know, I mentioned the poem Indigo that I recommended people go find a way to read because it's about seeing this man topless, full of tattoos and pushing a jogging stroller and being like, oh, God, I wish my daughter had a father like that. Um, <laughs> Which is just, it's such a beautiful kind of envy or jealousy or this wish of something to give for a child and what that might have meant about a different childhood and a different co-parent and a different, all sorts of things. Um, and I don't want to give away the ending because it really changes to a different direction of the relationship. But but yeah, just the, the fantasy of seeing somebody jogging topless in a park is about, mm, I wish my daughter had a dad like that. It's just really already not what you're expecting either. But like, yeah, if you could wish for a different kind of other co-parent for your child, even that alone is a transgressive thing to say for so many people. And I think that's what I, one thing I really have always loved about poems. From the first poem I remember hearing by Sharon Olds in undergrad of like, wow, that no one says that, but the other simultaneous feeling was I'm not alone. I think poems have always been really good for consoling me and making sure I didn't feel alone in the way I experienced the world. So even if I don't read other poems that have the same motherhood confessions exactly, to have other people's honesty about what they're experiencing in the world or things that they feel are selfish or other, you know, fathers they wish their children had or whatever that I, I just really appreciate hearing other people's honesty and that just makes me feel less alone even if they aren't my confessions too. I'm still kind of mulling over some of the pieces in that second poem that you read the um, many names for mother and mm -hmm. there was a line in there that caught my attention because it reminded me so she compares there to a children's picture book and it reminded me that you have written a children's book and I don't know much at all about it. I'm so familiar with your poetry, but don't know what that process was like for you to, to to write a children's book. And it's a companion piece to one of your poetry books. Is that right? Yeah. Sort of? um, yeah. yeah, no, it is. It, so I wrote uh, Sadaji. Uh, my mom was alive when I started. And I was like, this book is not about my mother. And then she died. It's like, okay, so what's about my mother? Because mm. <laughs> um, Sadaji is the Portuguese word Often we just, you know, say it means longing, but it's kind of more complex than that. Often it's considered about place, or a, but a place that you can't get back to or could never go to. Um, and so writing about my mom's childhood in Brazil, that felt, and of course starting that while she was alive and saying it's not about her. I ended up writing this sort of like fake family history that was sort of surreal, has a shape-shifting dolphin and all those things it's not real but when I was I just wasn't done with it even after like all of those pages and all of those years working on it um, and so when I was asked to write a children's book I just started exploring these little side stories and I actually wrote like a novel that's like the prequel to the book of poems I just really wasn't done writing about <laughs> this place and these people so I don't think I would have written a children's book if I hadn't been invited to but it was a really good way to ask what else was there or what else I could explore. And it, I think it fails as a children's book because maybe it's just too hefty and too lyrically poetic kind of thing that it's not the fun kind of book that my child likes to, to read. Mm -hmm. But it's this friendship between this boy and a ghost. And the ghost actually teaches him how to be less afraid. And the boy ends up teaching the ghost to let go. And so it, it also is about 
secretly or I'd been thinking about it as a way to talk to kids about maybe siblings that they could have had but don't, you know, from miscarriages mm-hmm. or babies that die of SIDS or other things. But in, in the book of poems, it's in the novel, it's very clear that the the boy and the ghost are sib- brother and sister. I'm thinking about, like, is there a way that people do or can they or what does it look like to have a relationship to a sibling that's gone or that didn't have a very long life? And, you know, that those are probably too hefty of questions, maybe entering into writing a children's book. But I think also, like, families have these experiences and there isn't a lot of, you know, good children's literature out there for talking about siblings who might die young or their moms, they knew their moms were pregnant, but then it was a stillbirth or these other things. Um, and just complicated to sort of talk about the siblings that maybe you don't have um, and for the parents to talk about the kids that they don't have that they could have had. And so, yeah, that's that's too hefty maybe for a kid's book, but <laughs> that's sort of the, the story behind it. But it is a lot of them playing and playing with rocks and, you know, playing with plants and being siblings and fighting and, you know. So it's very much they have a sibling relationship but one's a ghost. And deep down, other things that I was thinking about um, were those bigger questions as a as a parent who has a, you know, a child who was born and a child who was not. Do you feel like the writing it as a children's book, even if you feel like maybe maybe in hindsight it feels maybe too hefty, did it? writing it through that route rather than through through a book that was geared for adults? Did it allow you to write through some of those things that maybe haven't shown up in other ways in, in your work? Yeah, I think I, I thought through the child's perspective more rather than the parent's perspective because I I don't, at least according to my mom, she wanted three children, she got pregnant three times, she had three kids. <laughs> And I think that, and even the birth order she wanted, I don't think that's really common. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But so, you know, I I only thought about it through, I don't think I had that children's perspective of like, oh, I could have had a brother or sister, but thinking about it like for my son's perspective of like, ooh, what what would it be like to have an older sibling or how old would that child be now? Or, you know, these other questions that, that if you had a could have been sibling, um, how do you think about them? How do you relate to them? And watching my child right now who has a slippery interpretation of reality still, in my opinion, what sort of life might he invent for the sibling that he could have right now? So it, it, I don't know that it gave me other forms of healing, but it, I think as, as something to think through, it was kind of interesting to consider, you know, something I've only considered from one emotional perspective, from a different emotional perspective. Are there other children's books that you would recommend either for ones that you think work really well through these more like complicated or less frequently written about kinds of experiences or um, children's books that you'd recommend because they, they bring joy and delight and <laughs> the other kinds of things that we were talking about earlier? Um, the first one that occurs to me is the one that my son used to want to ask me to read most often. And it's uh, Neil Gaiman's Instructions. And mm. it's basically a hero's journey. But one of the things I find so interesting is that the illustrations are sometimes a very unique interpretation of what's being said. And my son and I have also made it into a Lego movie. Um, and so I find that, yeah, I find it really <laughs> interesting, like thinking through these different processes and that he's drawn to, because it's also interesting that the illustration is a fox person rather than a human, so it's the fox going on the hero's journey, like a, you know, bipedal fox. (laughs) (laughs) But also these ways in which, you know, animals often represent people in these these stories. But it was always one that I enjoyed him asking for because I enjoyed reading it. So that's that's one that I have just really enjoyed reading with him that he doesn't seem to have tired from. You know, there's often books that children go through these periods of interest in, and, and so that's this is one that he has remained interested in, and I quite liked that. And then the one that, that just occurs to me that I've just quite enjoyed reading, that he has lost interest, is They All Saw Cat. And it's from these different animal perspectives of how they see a cat. So then we get to talk about how do bats see and how do snakes see and how do, like, different animals see the world or how they would see a cat. 
and it rhymes a little bit, and I just think it's very fun and has the potential to open up conversations about science or about these other things. And I just, and then the cat eventually looks in the pond and sees himself. <laughs> but it's, it's just like a fun book. And I just think it's, it's fun to read as the reader. Um, and the images are interesting. And I like talking with him about, you know, because that's a good one too, when kids are developing that theory of mind and realizing other people have their own subjectivity. Um, but then also thinking that anim- about how animals, right, also experience the world very differently and see us very differently than we see them. That's great. I never would have even thought of that book. That's I might check it out, even though I have no little ones to read to. <laughs> I, I was curious if you've got anything kind of coming up on the horizon that our audience should know about. I know th- this new book is just out in the world, but I didn't know if you had spaces you were sharing it or where you were teaching or other places where people could connect with you. Yeah, next week, next Friday, I'm actually reading with Ellen Bass, whose work I shared because also I'm a huge fan. Um, but we're reading together next week for Bookshop in Santa Cruz, which has the Zoom links set up um, and is also available on Facebook. And I'm also teaching a course this summer for the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center. Um, I'm teaching a course on the body, thinking about calling it the body electric, pleasure and pain and poetry. But thinking about Virginia Woolf said in On Illness that she really thought that um, I mean, this was post-1918 flu pandemic that she thought that illness would take its place next to war and love as the great, one of the great themes of literature. And it has not. So, but looking at poems of the body in pleasure, the body in pain, thinking about how we get the body on the page and then how do we get that poem back into other people's bodies and feeling the poem. So, yes, I'll be teaching that at uh, the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center online from mid uh, from mostly the month of June, it's four weeks. I think it's June 8th to July 3rd, I want to say. That can be si- uh, signed up for at 24 Pearl Street Workshops to do that class online. Well, Tracy, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, thank you for being a guest on the occasion, and thanks to all of you listening out there. Hope you all are safe and healthy and kind to yourselves and to each other. Take care. Thank you so much, and happy Mother's Day, everyone. I know I can't.